Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. Big E here. Welcome back to my crime fighters listening to this podcast. Thank you to all of you out there for uh, your support and your interest in the podcast. This is a podcast to provide you with the information that you need if you're a Virginia law enforcement officer about law, new cases, new statutes. And today, we're going to be really talking a lot about new statutes because today we're going to talk about new bills, new legislation from the 2020 special session that's been going on this fall that was focused on, uh, as they described it, criminal justice reform, police reform. A lot of big changes, probably the biggest changes that I've seen, you know, at least in in 20 or 30 years uh, in Virginia law and law enforcement. So today and in upcoming episodes, we're going to take these pieces of legislation apart. There's a lot of pieces of legislation um, and believe it or not, the special session isn't really over because we still have pieces of legislation that we're waiting on, um, a couple of really significant ones that I'll mention that we still don't have results of. And uh, the date to submit new legislation for the new General Assembly session that starts in January is only a few days away. So, um, you know, it, it certainly took a lot longer, I think, than some people guessed, but we've got a lot of pieces of legislation to talk about. So, what are we going to be talking about in the upcoming episodes? We know a lot of different statutes have passed, uh, statutes about use of force, about search warrants, uh, statutes about hiring and certification and decertification of law enforcement officers, um, some statutes about civilian review boards, uh, statutes about criminal procedure, uh, and about data collection, about crimes and offenses, and uh, restrictions on law enforcement uh, purchase and use of equipment. And uh, I want to, I do want to spend, you know, I do want to get you all this information, but I also don't want to, you know, jump over anything too fast. So like I said, we're going to talk about these in upcoming episodes. Um, let's see if we can get through it in, you know, at least two, but we'll see uh, how long it takes us. But I do want to spend time talking about each one and the implications of each one. Um, in some detail. And then we may have to go back and really dive into one or particular one in in future episodes. So uh, let's dive into it now, though. Let's talk about the use of force legislation that has come through, uh, that has now passed and is now law. It's been signed by the governor, passed by both houses of uh, the General Assembly. Probably the most significant one to mention is the change in, uh, in Senate Bill 5030 regarding the use of deadly force. And this is the first time in Virginia that we have had a state definition regarding when an officer can use deadly force. So here is the definition. It says that a law enforcement officer shall not use deadly force against a person unless, number one, the law enforcement officer reasonably believes that deadly force is immediately necessary to protect the law enforcement officer or another person, other than the subject of the use of the deadly force, from the threat of serious bodily injury or death. Number two, if feasible, the law enforcement officer has provided a warning to the subject of the deadly force that he will use deadly force. Number three, the law enforcement officer's actions are reasonable given the totality of the circumstances. And four, all other options have been exhausted or do not reasonably lend themselves to the circumstances. And in determining whether the deadly force was proper, the following factors shall be considered. One is the reasonableness of the law enforcement officer's belief and actions from the perspective of a reasonable law enforcement officer on the scene at the time of the incident. And two, the totality of the circumstances, which includes 
uh, five different factors. It says it includes, it doesn't, it's not limited to, but it says it includes five factors. The amount of time available to the law enforcement officer to make a decision, whether the subject of the use of deadly force possessed or appeared to possess a deadly weapon and refused to comply with the law enforcement officer's lawful order to surrender an object believed to be a deadly weapon prior to the law enforcement officer using deadly force, whether the law enforcement officer engaged in de-escalation measures prior to the use of deadly force, including taking cover, waiting for backup, trying to calm the suspect, uh, subject rather prior to the use of force, or using the non-deadly force prior using non-deadly force prior to the use of deadly force. Number four is whether any conduct by the law enforcement officer prior to the use of deadly force intentionally increased the risk of a confrontation resulting in deadly force being used. And five is the seriousness of the suspected crime. Now, if you're an avid listener of the podcast, you've heard me kind of go through this statute, um, almost the exact exact words in an earlier statute about these proposals. We really kind of walked through and take, took it apart. <clears throat> but I, this is the final version. So it's worth taking a minute again and kind of reviewing that. Again, if you want to listen to that, we can talk about this in future episodes too. But we really took this uh, proposal apart in, um, in a previous episode. So it says a law enforcement officer shall not use deadly force against a person unless the officer reasonably believes that deadly force is immediately necessary. And so this is not a big change because this, you know, we the word imminent is that what exists under current law under Tennessee versus Garner. And you'll see courts sometimes conflate uh, imminent and immediate anyway. There's a lot of debate about whether those words mean the same thing or different things, but it's not a big change. The law enforcement reasonably believes that deadly force is immediately necessary to protect a law enforcement officer or another person from the threat of serious bodily injury or death. Well, that's Tennessee versus Garner. That's just Virginia enacting Tennessee versus Garner, which is the existing standard under uh, existing law. What's added here is that you can't use deadly force to protect the subject of the use of deadly force from the threat of serious bodily injury or death. You can't try to kill someone to stop them from trying to kill themselves. Uh, someone's trying to commit suicide, you couldn't shoot them, um, that kind of stuff. Secondly, if feasible, the law enforcement officer has provided a warning to the subject of the deadly force that he will use deadly force. Again, this is not a change. This is pretty much what, you know, the Fourth Circuit has held for some time. If feasible, you shall give a warning. Again, it may not be feasible. Um, the, you know, when you're, if you're responding to an active shooter situation, like the individual who uh, opened fire and was trying to kill congressmen at the ball field in Alexandria, it's not feasible to yell across a ball field to say, excuse me, sir, I'm the police officer, I'm the police. And besides, he's shooting at police officers. He knows that you're the police. Um, it's not feasible in that situation. The law enforcement officer's actions are reasonable, given the totality of the circumstances. Again, that's pretty much existing law. Um, and all other options have been exhausted or do not reasonably lend themselves to the circumstances. That's new. That's not a standard that we have under existing law. Certainly, the federal law does not require you to exhaust all other options. Um, but here, again, you don't necessarily have to exhaust other options if the situation doesn't reasonably lend themselves. What are the other options? Again, you show up to an active shooter, guys shooting at congressmen and shooting at police officers. What's the other option that's, you know, available to you in that circumstance? Um, so it goes on and says, in, in determining whether deadly force was proper, the following factors will be considered. Number one, the reasonableness of law enforcement officer's belief and actions from the perspective of a reasonable law enforcement officer on the scene at the time of the incident. That's, again, existing law. It's not a change. 
and it specifies what should be considered in the totality of circumstances. Some of this is new, and some of this is existing law. Um, the amount of time available to the law enforcement officer to make a decision, again, that's existing law. Whether the subject of the use of deadly force possessed or appeared to possess a deadly weapon and refused to comply with a law enforcement officer's lawful order to surrender an object believed to be a deadly weapon prior to the law enforcement officer using deadly force. Again, that's pretty much existing law. You see that all over in cases uh, by the Fourth Circuit, for example. Um, whether the law enforcement officer engaged in de-escalation measures prior to the use of deadly force, including taking cover, waiting for backup, trying to calm the subject prior to the use of force, or, not, or using non-deadly force prior to the use of deadly force. This is new. This is something that's not currently required. This statute doesn't make it required that you use de-escalation measures. It just simply says that whether you did or not, Will, uh, will factor into uh, whether or not the use of deadly force is proper, trying to calm the suspect. Again, if you've got a situation where you've got somebody who's you know, shooting at police officers or shooting at you know, congressmen in a ball field, you know, there's no calming somebody down. There's no using non-deadly force. Taking cover is not solving the problem here. Um, but in other situations, certainly you can imagine uh, this would be a factor. Whether any conduct by the law enforcement officer prior to the use of deadly force intentionally increased the risk of confrontation, resulting in deadly force being used. Um, this was a big issue in Casella versus Hughes, which is a U.S. Supreme Court case. Officers are trying to deal with somebody who's got a knife and waving a knife at her roommate. The roommate had called for help, saying you know her roommate was um, was violent and dangerous. So the police show up. And the police officers go over a fence and approach the individual with the knife. There was an argument that the officers shouldn't have walked over to the person with the knife because when they walked over to the person with the knife, that increased the risk of uh, that person with the knife then creating a situation where, you know, the, there was no choice but to use deadly force. And they ultimately do shoot the person in Casella versus Hughes, although the person survives. Um, and there was an argument made, well, it, you know, you should consider whether the officers created that situation by approaching the individual. And the U.S. Supreme Court rejects that argument here. The General Assembly says, no, that is a factor that you have to consider. But notice it's whether you intentionally increase the risk, not whether you do something that also has the byproduct of increasing the risk. So again, in Casella versus Hughes, when the officer goes over the fence and walks over to the individual with the knife, you know, is the officer intentionally increasing the risk or is the officer attempting to de-escalate the situation, doing what's required here, trying to calm the suspect, um, you know, using non-deadly force, trying to, you know, engage in de-escalation measures and so on. And then lastly, uh, you take into account the seriousness of the suspected crime. That's, again, existing law. Um, the statute also makes a couple of acts uh, completely prohibited. Uh, one of them is the willful discharge of a firearm into or at a moving vehicle unless the discharge of the firearm is immediately necessary to protect a law enforcement officer or another person from death or serious bodily injury. Not a change in the law. Shooting at a moving vehicle is use of deadly force. So again, you can't use deadly force under existing law unless you're protecting somebody from death or serious bodily injury. Um, the use of kinetic impact munitions by a law enforcement officer is prohibited unless the use of kinetic impact munitions is necessary to protect the law enforcement officer or another person from bodily injury. Um, and that the kinetic impact munitions includes impact rounds and baton rounds, such as rubber batons, beanbag rounds, foam baton rounds, and plastic, wax, wood, or rubber-coated projectiles. So that is a change in the law. Um, currently, 
it would be a use of non-deadly force to use those kinds of munitions under Graham versus Connor. And Graham versus Connor takes into account several different factors in deciding whether that's proper, you know, the severity of the crime at issue, whether the person is actively uh, resisting or evading arrest by flight, and whether the person poses a threat to uh, you, an immediate, an imminent, uh, immediate threat to you or somebody else. Here, the the law in Virginia is writing in that there has to be a threat of bodily injury. It can't simply be severity of the crime at issue and um, actively resisting or evading. There has to be some threat of bodily injury uh, to use those munitions. Um, the penalty for violation of this, according to the bill that's passed, um, is that uh, an officer shall be subject to disciplinary action, including dismissal, demotion, suspension, or transfer, or decertification, which is a pretty powerful tool, as you'll see under the new statute when we talk about it. Um, but the criminal penalties that were originally proposed were removed from the final bill. So if you remember in the earlier podcast episodes, we talked about how it was potentially a class six felony or class four felony. You know, you could get, um, you know, up to 10 years in the penitentiary. Here, the criminal penalties have been removed. Um, the questions that remain, though, are now that we've defined when deadly force can be used, does that come into effect in civil cases? For example, does it decide whether or not the use of deadly force is proper in a civil case? Um, and also, does it define the use of deadly force in a criminal case? In other words, would, th would this be how we judge a law enforcement officer's use of deadly force in a criminal case? Um, and it's a good question because if you notice, there's a lot of requirements here, like, for example, exhausting other alternatives, that would be required for a law enforcement officer to use deadly force that are not required for a, ci for a civilian to use deadly force. I mean, in Virginia, a civilian can use deadly force in self-defense if they reasonably believe, under the circumstances that appear to them, uh, that they are in imminent uh, danger of death or serious bodily injury. Um, and in those situations, again, there's no requirement to retreat. We have a castle doctrine in Virginia that's 100 years old um, for our homes. But even on the street, there's no requirement to retreat if you're facing an imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury. And so here, the standard is actually higher for a law enforcement officer than a civilian. So, you know, query, you know, if you think about the officers, and this has happened in several jurisdictions where they're just ambushed, you know, and shot in their cars. In Los Angeles, it happened, it's happened in New York City. Just, you know, somebody walks up and just opens fire on law enforcement in a vehicle. Um, you know, is that if, they, if they encounter that situation and they respond with deadly force, if somebody were to try to evaluate that from a criminal perspective, which statute do you use? Do you use this statute about deadly force or do you use the civilian standard of, of self-defense? The statute doesn't answer that question. Well, we're talking about deadly, excuse me, about use of force. Uh, another big change here is a specific set of restrictions on the use of neck restraints. And these are obviously responses to the death of George Floyd. Um, but here, the neck restraint, the restrictions that are put into place uh, are put into place by two different bills that were both passed and actually have different language. And one of the bills was more restrictive than the other. So I'm going to talk about both of them, but obviously the one that's more restrictive applies. When we talk about neck restraints, we're talking, and here the code defines a neck restraint as the use of any body part or object to attempt to control or disable a person by applying pressure against the neck, including the trachea or carotid artery, with or carotid artery, excuse me, carotid artery, with the purpose, intent, or effect of controlling or restricting the person's movement or restricting the person's blood flow or breathing, 
including chokeholds, uh, carotid restraints, and latter vascular neck restraints. So we're talking about certainly those things, right? Chokeholds, carotid restraints, latter vascular neck restraints. But we're really talking about any time that you <clears throat> try to control somebody by applying pressure against their neck. And uh, so, you know, consider, you know, putting a knee on someone's neck or putting your hand on their neck or grabbing them by the neck, putting your hand on the back of their neck. Um, there is a pressure point that's right under the jaw. And so, you know, is that the neck? Well, you know, it, it, probably that's, you know, a doctor would come in and say that's not the neck. If you're using the pressure point under the jaw, that's not the neck. Uh, but if you miss that, if you grab them and you, you know, grab them by the neck instead, um, here, even if you didn't have the purpose or the intent, if you, you know, miss that pressure point and you go for their, and you, and you end up in contact with their neck, and that has the effect of controlling or restricting the person's movement, that again would fall under this prohibition. <clears throat> what, it, what the statute says, so they passed two different statutes. The first statute said that the use of a neck restraint by a law enforcement officer is prohibited unless the use of the neck restraint is immediately necessary to protect the law enforcement officer or another person. So just to protect the officer. But the other bill that they passed says that the use of a neck restraint or by a law enforcement officer is prohibited unless the use of a neck restraint is immediately necessary to protect the law enforcement officer or another person from death or serious bodily injury. So <clears throat> they passed one that didn't include that language, and then they did pass another one that did include that language. So that means that the one that does include that language controls. So you can only use that neck restraint to protect uh, a the officer or another person from death or serious bodily injury. So you could use a chokehold or carotid restraint uh, or ladder vascular neck restraint, or indeed, you know, you could end up putting your knee on someone's, uh, you know, neck or something like that if you were trying to protect uh, yourself from death or protect somebody else from death or serious bodily injury, but otherwise you couldn't. The penalty for this, and again, this was a debate, and ultimately, it, it was originally they proposed uh, criminal punishments. Those were removed, and the penalty is now, in, in addition to any other penalty authorized by law, any law enforcement officer who knowingly violates the provisions of this chapter shall be subject to disciplinary action, including dismissal, demotion, suspension, or transfer of the law enforcement officer, or decertification, as provided in uh, the code section we'll talk about. But it says, in addition to any other penalty authorized by law. So again, it remains to be seen how this is used in civil cases. Uh, for example, again, because law enforcement officers aren't allowed to use this, so could you sue an officer for assault and battery uh, in that circumstance? How would a court look at that? And then could it be used in a criminal prosecution? Again, I guess the standard would be for assault and battery uh, for using a use of force that was improper. The code here doesn't explain. It just says, in addition to any other penalty authorized by law. <clears throat> um, the code also goes on, uh, the amendments also go on to define excessive force. And this is something that we don't currently have defined in Virginia, but when this goes into effect, we will have a definition of excessive force. And there will be uh, a new requirement for law enforcement officers with respect to when they uh, witness uh, excessive force. So excessive force under Virginia law means any force that is objectively unreasonable given the totality of the circumstances, including the severity of the crime at issue, 
whether the suspect poses an immediate threat to the safety of others, officers or others, and whether the suspect is actively resisting arrest or attempting to evade arrest by flight. If that sounds familiar to you, it should, because it probably shows up in all of your directives, and you learned it in the academy, it is the use of force standard from Graham versus Connor. And in Fourth Circuit cases, in uh, civil cases involving 1983, this is how federal courts define excessive force. It's, it's force that is not proper under Graham versus Connor. But here, the statute goes on to require that in Virginia, any law enforcement officer who, while in the performance of their official duties, witnesses another law enforcement officer engaging or attempting to engage in the use of excessive force, shall intervene when such intervention is feasible to end the use of excessive force or to prevent the further use of excessive force. So a couple of things about this. The first is uh, that there were other proposals out there that didn't include that when you observe it, you had to be in the performance of your official duties, right? So some of these like required, like if you were at a kid's baseball game and you were like in plain clothes or, you know, if you're on TV watching, uh, you know, a, a riot in Richmond or something, you would have to respond. This requires that you have to be in the performance of your official duties for this requirement to kick in. Um, and then when you witness another officer engaged in excessive force, you, you shall intervene if it's feasible, right? So again, if you're involved in, let's say there's a mass demonstration and violence breaks out and there's just, you know, fights everywhere um, and you look across the, you know, esplanade and you see a hundred yards away an officer engaging in something that you think doesn't look to be appropriate, you don't know what the circumstances are, but it looks to you like that's unreasonable. But, you know, to get there, it would be unreasonable. It's unreasonable to get there, then that wouldn't apply. But if it's you and somebody else and you're just, you know, you're arresting somebody for trespassing and your fellow officer walks over and just punches the guy and knocks him on the ground and starts beating him up, um, you you have to intervene uh, if it's feasible to end, end, end the use of excessive force. Now, again, feasibility may depend upon, um, you know, the circumstances and uh, but you also or at least try you at least have to have to prevent the except further excessive use of force maybe call for additional aid or something and while we're on that topic you shall also under Virginia code now render aid as circumstances objectively permit to any person injured as a result of a use of excessive force and that really doesn't add anything because under federal law you have to render aid to people who are injured whether they were injured as a use of excessive force or just lawful force um, in other words, if you lawfully use force against somebody, uh, you still have to render aid under the Constitution. So this doesn't really make a big change. Um, but another big change here is that in any law enforcement officer who intervenes pursuant to that code section I talked about, or who witnesses another law enforcement officer engaging or attempting to engage in the use of excessive force against another person, shall report such intervention, if you intervened, or shall report the use of excessive force in accordance with the law enforcement officer's policies and procedures for reporting misconduct by a law enforcement officer. So here you have to follow your policies and procedures about reporting excessive force. Um, notice again, the question is, well, what if I'm you know, in plain clothes at a baseball game and I see something happen and I'm outside my jurisdiction? Uh, or what if I'm just watching TV and I'm watching a riot on TV? Um, well, here you'd make reference to what are your policies and procedures of your agency require. If they require that you report it, then yeah, you got to report it. Uh, if they don't require that you report it, then you don't have to necessarily report it. 
But you have a protection here, which is that no employing agency shall retaliate, threaten to retaliate, or take or threaten to take any disciplinary action against a law enforcement officer who intervenes here or who makes a report pursuant to this section. So if you report, uh, you know, you see your sergeant engage in something that was, in your view, excessive, if you report it uh, under this code section, you cannot be retaliated against. Um, and um, here, if again, if you fail to comply with this, so if you fail to intervene in the use of excessive force, or if you fail to report the use of excessive force, uh, then in addition to any other penalty authorized by law, uh, an officer who violates provisions of this section shall be subject to disciplinary action, including dismissal, demotion, suspension, or transfer, or decertification. And as I mentioned before, uh, this uh, code section originally included potential um, criminal penalties, <clears throat> but those criminal penalties were no longer were removed, and ultimately this is uh, what was ended up with. So that's the changes with respect to use of force. Uh, and again, there's a lot of changes here, but the last one I want to talk about today is the prohibition on no-knock search warrants. Here, here, the Senate and the House both passed bills that provided that no law enforcement officer shall seek execute or participate in the execution of a no-knock search warrant. Instead, search warrants authorized in Virginia shall require that a law enforcement officer be recognizable and identifiable as a uniformed law enforcement officer and provide audible notice of his authority and purpose reasonably expected to be heard by the occupants of such place to be searched prior to the execution of a search warrant. So that's obviously a significant change. There is no way to ask for authorization from a court uh, for a no-knock search warrant. Uh, you have to uh, knock and announce your presence. This is a requirement that attaches to search warrants. It doesn't attach to arrest warrants. And so I would talk to your Commonwealth attorney about you know, how to handle the uh, handle that arrest warrants. You'll see in a moment the other change that they made uh, with is respect to, uh, also again, respect to only search warrants and not arrest warrants. But here, when you're serving a search warrant, there are new requirements as well. After entering and securing the place to be searched and prior to underca undertaking any search or seizure uh, pursuant to the search warrant, the executing law enforcement officer shall read and give a copy of the search warrant to the person to be searched or the owner of the place to be searched, or if the owner is not present, to any occupant of the place to be searched. So you actually have to read the search warrant to the person. Um, it says the search warrant, it doesn't say the affidavit, so, uh, but the search warrant actually is you know, pretty long, it may take some time, and you have to do that before uh, going about uh, the search. Now you may ask yourself here, well, what if I'm serving, you know, Facebook or Google or I'm executing a search warrant on a phone or on a computer? Well, here it says if the place to be searched is unoccupied, the executing law enforcement officer shall leave a copy of the search warrant suitably affixed to the place to be searched. And again, you say, you say well, Facebook is occupied, Google is occupied. Um, here, at least in Virginia so far, we don't have a private right of action that you could make that would say, well, you know, you violated Facebook's right. Uh, so, you know, in that case, I, I think that there probably wouldn't be a motion to suppress here. But we'll have to see because the code provides uh, that any evidence obtained from a search warrant in violation of this subsection shall not be admitted into evidence for the Commonwealth in any prosecution. 
So even though the Fourth Amendment doesn't give you standing to move to suppress, this code section seems to say uh, that you shall nevertheless uh, comply with these code sections, and if you don't, that it will be um, that it will be suppressed. So you're going to have to figure out again with your counsel's attorney how you would address this with respect to you know serving a bank or serving a you know Facebook or Google or whatever. Um, in addition to that. Uh, search warrants authorized under the code shall be executed only in the daytime. Uh, so you may no longer execute search warrants at night unless a judge or a magistrate, if a judge isn't available, so you have to first get a judge, and, and if the judge isn't available, then you can turn to a magistrate, authorizes the execution of such search warrant at another time for good cause shown, or the search warrant is, is for the withdrawal of blood. Blood you can always draw at any time of the day, and obviously because most of those are at night anyway. But again, if you think about your Facebook warrants, your Google warrants, or your uh, search warrants for the search of digital devices, um, a lot of those are done not in the daytime. A lot of those are done in the nighttime. And there, you couldn't do that. You couldn't execute one of those warrants at night unless a judge authorized it. Um, and uh, if, if you don't have a judge around, you have to get the magistrate's authorization. And you shall make reasonable efforts to locate a judge before seeking authorization. And your reasonable efforts to find that judge have to be documented in an affidavit and submitted to a magistrate when seeking the authorization to execute a warrant at night. Um, if you're wondering, by the way, well, okay, but if I'm serving a search warrant, for example, on Google or Facebook or financial institution, um, if it's daytime in my time, but it's nighttime at their time because of you know the time zone, then which one controls? The code says the Eastern time zone controls in those situations, and there's a code section on that, um, which is, if you need it for your notes, it's 1-253. Mm -hmm. um, but again, notice here that this is, not, this is not overriding the Fourth Amendment. It's simply adding an additional requirement that doesn't exist in the Fourth Amendment. But this says that evidence obtained from a search warrant in violation of this subsection shall not be admitted into evidence for the Commonwealth in any prosecution. So what that means is that even though, you know, you're executing a search warrant here, let's say, for example, on the victim's property, uh, and you're searching the victim's property, um, let's say the victim of a homicide, um, but you execute that search warrant at night, <clears throat> even though the defendant, it's not his property, it's not his house, if you obtain evidence in violation of this subsection, uh, the evidence shall not be admitted uh, even though it doesn't violate any of the defendant's rights whatsoever. So um, this is a pretty sweeping, it's a pretty significant code section. Uh, it's a pretty significant right, and you should definitely be aware of it. So those are two topic areas uh, of, of note. Uh, in future episodes, we're going to talk about changes in hiring certification. Um, there was a big statute on civilian review boards. Uh, there's a change in data collection that I do want to talk about. Uh, changes in criminal procedure, changes in crimes and offenses, uh, restrictions on equipment. And we're still waiting, in fact, uh, for the governor to act on um, a big change in jury sentencing, uh, a big change in earned sentence credits uh, that potentially brings back, you know, the days of people only serving half their time. Um, and uh, obviously the code section we talked about, you know, on traffic stops and marijuana, um, you know, can you stop somebody for driving in the dark without their lights on? That is, a, is still pending, and we're still waiting for the governor to, we're still waiting for, to see what happens with the General Assembly on that one. Uh, we're actually waiting for the General Assembly on, the, on that code section. So all that's still going on, but that's a big, uh, a big, big set of topics to cover today, 
And I hope it was helpful to at least go through and take that apart and sort of understand what those code sections were. For today, though, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Um, for those of you out there, please stay safe. Don't get captured.